Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. What I want to do is, um, well, what I've been told to do, actually, is be a little bit autobiographical and then transition from that into my impressions of what it really means to be a scientist or to be training as a scientist, or for that matter, someone in the health professions, because I know we're, we're on a medical campus here, in an age where um, essentially society is secular and to some extent antithetical or antipathic, uh, antipathic, anti against, to some extent, uh, religion. So, as an antipathy to religion, how about that? So, um, this is my personal view, and I would welcome your comments, discussions. Uh, I'll try to leave enough time for that. I was told to stop at a quarter of, and that would give us 15 minutes. So, please do that. So, I am an astronomer who believes in God. Now, a century ago, that wouldn't have raised any eyebrows, maybe not even 60 or 70 years ago. Um, even if I were to go on to say that I'm an astronomer who believes that God is triune in nature, uh, that the resurrection really happened, and that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist. Uh, such statements probably would raise some eyebrows in some of the laboratories here at this outstanding university, <clears throat> which um, uh, is um, a place where at least one graduate student that I was uh, not the primary advisor for, but was on her committee and now has a, a professorship. Uh, so, you know, why is that? Science was just as well practiced 100 years ago. Some of the most profound discoveries in astrophysics uh, really were made uh, at the time that Einstein developed his theory of general relativity. Science was just as fruitful back then as it is today. So what has changed to make my declaration relatively controversial? Why is it that there is such a strong narrative in the U.S. that faith and science have to be in conflict with each other? So I'll talk a little bit about that uh, as we go along. Now, as I said, I was asked to be autobiographical. Uh, this is not exactly, you know, like um, hearing about the biography of a rock star or something like that. I try to tell people that 
I actually work both on stars and also on rocks, but I am not a rock star. So, um, nonetheless, uh, hopefully this will be a little bit interesting. So, I'm not a cradle Catholic. Uh, I was a cradle astronomer from my earliest childhood. I was fascinated by astronomy. Uh, there were various books and records and things, but probably, and by the way, this um, screen apparently doesn't work properly with Macs, so uh, that's why I'm not using that screen. So I have to work over there. But uh, one of the, the biggest stimuli to my interest <clears throat> was uh, the Hayden Planetarium of the American Museum of Natural History in Manhattan, where I grew up. And I lived quite close to it, at least early on. So it's not there like that today. If you go there, you'll see a big glass sphere called the Rose Center, uh, which in and of itself is marvelous. But I kind of like this. With the golden dome and the pillars, it's kind of like a temple of science. And you went in there, and there was classical music, and there was these sort of frescoes on the ceiling. Um, and then you went into the, the Star Theater, and the lights would darken, and uh, this two-headed beast would rise up from the center of the Star Theater uh, called a Zeiss Projector, which had each of the stars, naked eye stars, individually um, machined into it with lenses, really an incredible machine. And it did kind of look like some two-headed alien rising up from, from its pit. So it made a big impression on me, obviously. Uh, so while astronomy was my passion, um, my religious upbringing was in Judaism. My father was uh, Polish and uh, Belarus origin. His family was conservative Jewish. My mother, uh, actually, uh, her family went back a couple of generations in New York City, uh, but originally of Austrian and German origin. And her father, who I never met because he died of a heart attack before I was born, believed that religion was the root of all of humanity's troubles. So um, her side of the upbringing was rather light, non-traditional. Um, she was also a dancer at Radio City Music Hall uh, for um, a number of years. And uh, we celebrated, as all good Jews in New York City did, we celebrated Christmas along with Hanukkah. We had a Christmas tree. Our family Bible was the King James Bible because it was beautifully illustrated with these colored plates of classical paintings. And I still have that Bible today, actually. Um, so that was all wonderful. It was kind of a bucolic early existence. And then my, my father, uh, who was a haberdasher, which is an old-fashioned term for men's clothing uh, store, haberdashery, uh, he was an alcoholic. And his health declined, his mental health declined. He lost his business. And uh, things got pretty dark uh, in our family. I... Um, Spent time actually reading a lot. Uh, this was all happening when I was in junior high, what we now call middle school. Um, I was reading a lot from that King James Bible. I'd go look at the, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, then I'd flip over to the New Testament, and I had some amount of religious training. My family joined a synagogue, uh, so I had a little bit on the, the Hebrew Scriptures, but nothing on the New Testament, which seemed... Very interesting, but also very strange to me. 
So right around the time that um, this, I was in middle school, 13 or 14, my father died. Things were pretty grim. And, uh, and I, somewhere in there, I don't remember exactly when, um, I had um, an encounter with Jesus Christ in a very, very vivid dream. So I could have become a Christian at the age of 14. I didn't because um, even though my mother was encouraging, you all remember being teenagers, right? It wasn't <laughs> um, you know, I told her this dream. She said, well, what more do you actually need? Because she was considering converting. So that kind of shut me down. It, it made me very self-conscious as a 14-year-old. So it would actually be 33 years before I, I converted to, to Catholicism. But meanwhile, my passion for astronomy was being fueled by a correspondence with Carl Sagan, a very famous astronomer from Cornell of the 1980s and 1990s. I had great professors as an undergraduate at the University of Rochester in physics and astronomy. Uh, in graduate school, I went to Caltech in planetary science, study of planets. I finished my education in 1985. I was occasionally going to synagogue with friends, but two or three times a year for high holy days, and that was about it. I'd go to Passover seders. Um, I spent 26 years at the University of Arizona teaching in planetary science, and then I came to Cornell in 2011, and I've been at Cornell for 12 years. So I'm going to get back to my religious conversion in a minute, but I want to give you a flavor for some of what I do. So even though from a technical point of view I'm a theorist, I do almost all my work with uh, spacecraft missions. And I've been very privileged to be involved in a number of different missions, Voyager Neptune in 1989, the Cassini mission to Saturn, Juno to Jupiter, which is still operating, uh, JUICE, Jupiter Icy Moon Explorer, which was just launched uh, last week to Jupiter uh, to actually study Ganymede and Callisto, two of the moons, uh, Europa Clipper, which will launch next year to Europa, and James Webb Space Telescope. So if you haven't heard of James Webb Space Telescope, it's one of the most remarkable technical inventions that's ever been put in space. It's got a mirror that's six and a half meters in diameter, so that's uh, about 22 feet across. Uh, it's a multiple mirror telescope so that uh, this uh, primary mirror could be folded up and fit, uh, fitted into a rocket shroud. And then uh, these layers that look like mylar, but they're not quite mylar, are a sun shield. Uh, Webb is designed to look in the middle infrared part of the spectrum at the universe. And to do that, it has to be very cold. The mirror has to be extremely cold. Otherwise, uh, its own heat would generate infrared radiation and essentially blind all the detectors. So I was involved in this uh, on the science working group. Uh, this is just one example of a picture that came out yesterday. Uh, this is a very bad day for two galaxies, or maybe a very bad billion years for them. These are two spiral galaxies that are actually merging. And so each of them is somewhat like the Milky Way, but as these two galaxies slide through each other, the stars get idly interact with each other. Some of them end up going supernova. And the net result is that the luminosity that you see here 
is the equivalent of a trillion suns, about 10 times or 100 times the brightness of our own Milky Way galaxy. And then if you look elsewhere in this image, and you can get this um, on, on the World Wide Web, there are lots of other galaxies. One of the amazing things about Web is that it has this enormous dynamic range so that even though it's looking at a relatively bright object, you can see lots of faint galaxies in the background. So I don't use it to study galaxies. I study planets around other stars and uh, the cold remnants of planet formation in our solar system. And Webb is really good for that too. But this is a really amazing, uh, amazing uh, device that's only been up in space working for less than a year. Maybe of more interest to a medical campus is um, looking for life in the solar system. So this is um, Enceladus, a moon of Saturn, and it was visited by the Cassini mission, a small moon about 500 uh, miles across, 300 miles across. And it has um, these interesting fractures, material is coming out of those fractures. Cassini was able to determine by remote sensing that underneath this icy surface, this is mostly water ice, there is a liquid water ocean. And so these jets of material are coming out of uh, a liquid water ocean. And because Cassini carried instruments that could directly sample molecules, uh, devices called mass spectrometers, it was possible to determine that not only are the ice grains made of water, but they're salty water. There are organic molecules, carbon-bearing molecules in the grains. And there are... Um, Simple minerals like uh, silicon dioxide that suggests that underneath the ocean, uh, the rock is interacting with warm water and extracting silicon and oxygen from, from the rock. So in a very basic way, this ocean seems to have all the ingredients to support life, microbial life. The question is, is there actually life? So I'm working with a group there competitors as well to try to get NASA to send another mission with instruments that could detect life. And uh, write your congressman. Oh, we're recording this, aren't we? I didn't mean that. If you we want do that to, all the around. time, don't worry. Okay, <laughs> write your congressman all the time. Excellent. Super. Um, so that's kind of what I do. It was a year after arriving in Tucson that I um, met my wife-to-be, now of 36 years, we've been married, and we both went to a rather non-traditional Methodist church in Tucson uh, with a very brilliant pastor, David Wilkinson, shown here um, quite a bit older in this picture than when he started, he's now retired, and he introduced me to a, a lot of um, aspects of Catholicism. Uh, he was well-read in Théard de Chardin. Um, he would talk in not always complimentary way about the Church Fathers like Augustine, um, St. Francis, and, and others. And, and we went to that church for a couple of decades. It was also in Tucson that I came to work with the Jesuit brothers and fathers of the Vatican Observatory, who have a headquarters in Tucson because they have a telescope nearby. Their main headquarters is Rome. And it was um, in working with them, on, on, particularly on a summer school uh, in Rome, and uh, in fact, this the director there with uh, Pope Francis is uh, Brother Guy Consolmagno, 
I knew him from well before he became a Jesuit. What really impressed me was the seamless way in which they integrated their lives of faith and science, scientific research. So, fast forward over time, 2006, after a sabbatical in Rome, the second sabbatical in Rome, I was sitting in my living room, uh, and um, suddenly I realized that I had been delaying for a long time what I should have been doing to really express how I felt about um, my own soul and about, um, about what reality was all about, which is that I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and is the incarnate uh, second person of the Trinity, and that I was a Catholic. And so I called up our son's pediatrician, who was Catholic, devout Catholic, and I uh, told him about this, and he became my sponsor, and I uh, went through the RCIA program. Those of you who are Catholic don't know what that is, and converted, um, baptized, and confirmed in 2007. So that was my, uh, that's my story. I want to move from that story to uh, the question of the societal conflict between science and faith. This is a, a major theme in American society, if you read on the web, on newspapers, etc. Um, one could believe that the, there is a battle, number one, and number two, the battle's already been won in favor of science. So I want to challenge both of those assumptions. Number one, that there is necessarily a conflict, and number two, the conflict is over in some way. Um, there is in the United States a very strong cultural bias. There's a 2019 book, 2019 book, entitled Secularity and Science, What Scientists Around the World Really Think About Religion, by Elaine Eklund and her colleagues. And they interviewed scientists from around the world, and what they found was that uh, this perceived conflict is not only a peculiarly Western phenomenon, it's largely an American phenomenon. Um, in another study published this year, Eklund and Johnson surveyed a number of scientists who identified themselves as being atheists, and she found that their views about religion were largely in conflict with the most famous uh, new atheists, as they're called, that are publishing books these days, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, um, people like that. Their views are at odds with what's in those books. Uh, some of these scientists have spouses who are religious. Uh, some of them see the moral framework of religion as important for living life well, even though they don't believe in God. And others just don't engage in faith, but they're not hostile to religion or religious people. So why has this narrative <clears throat> developed then? Who is feeding this narrative? So Eklund and her colleagues see the conflict narrative as driven mostly by two factors. First, the history of the very public battle over the teaching of evolution at the turn of the century, which is ironic because one of the two cornerstones of evolution, which is how traits are actually inherited, came out of the work of an Augustinian monk, Gregor Mendel, but that was unappreciated for a long time. And second, <clears throat> there is in the United States a tendency to stereotype all religious people as being antithetical to science, and to some extent, there are cohorts of people who are both very religious and are antithetical to science, so that does feed the narrative. 
but that is not a universal trait, and it certainly is not the case um, for a number of prominent scientists who are religious. Um, people like Ken Miller, Francis Collins, uh, many, many others. So it's a, it's a mixed bag, but there's um, enough hard feelings over evolution, I suppose, and then some current trends of kind of anti-science views among some cohorts who are very religious to kind of feed this antagonism. Um, the other aspect that's important here is that scientists have a, a tremendous uh, reputation for trustworthiness. People trust what scientists say. Austin Hughes wrote in the New Atlantis Journal in 2012 that there is, quote, a growing tendency to treat as scientific anything that scientists say or believe, regardless of whether it's political or philosophical or whatever. Um, a scientist's view on politics <clears throat> or even philosophy may be more trusted by the public than a politician's view on politics, well, that's pretty easy, uh, or a philosopher's view on philosophy, which is quite extraordinary. And the fact that I'm talking to you now about non-scientific topics and you're likely to believe me makes the case. Uh, it's particularly so in the U.S. Uh, there's certain cultural naivete that is not present so much in Europe, which has a longer tradition of classical studies. Uh, and so it tends to be, again, a kind of an American phenomenon. The consequences of that are really quite um, tragic, I would say. Well, let's do a thought experiment. So let's imagine a young, impressionable high school student who picks up a book in Barnes & Noble, um, let's say The Grand Design, published in 2010 by the famous astrophysicist Stephen Hawking, who died a few years ago, and his colleague Leonard Mladenov. And they read the following from the introduction to the book. What is the nature of reality? Where did all this come from? Did the universe need a creator? Traditionally, these are questions for philosophy, but philosophy is dead. Scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. That's a quote from the book. So that poor student might then go on to find on an NBC website an article describing why Hawking was sure that God does not exist. Hawking is quoting from uh, his, his final book, although there's a sort of a, it's a penultimate book if you want to think that he co-wrote another book from the grave, which I'll get to in a minute, just came out. Um, so his final book that he actually wrote, Brief Answers to Big Questions, he states that because the universe began as a singularity, time itself could not have existed before the Big Bang. Hawking then states there was no time before the Big Bang. And he goes on to say that these are reasons why there isn't a creator. Now that's, um, in fact, he says the following. We have finally found something that doesn't have a cause because there was no time for a cause to exist in. For me, Stephen Hawking, this means there is no possibility of a creator because there is no time for a creator to have existed in. Even though his statement that time did not begin until the Big Bang is virtually identical to what St. Augustine said in the 4th century, early 5th century, in the City of God, in which he says time was created with the world itself. 
but Hawking has taken a certain twist to this. So since, uh, as Hughes wrote, we tend to believe scientists when they state their beliefs, Hawking has said that scientists have supplanted philosophers in their search for the truth, that Hawking has reason based on his uh, own research in the origin of the universe to uh, assert that there is no God, well, our poor high school student is probably going to stop attending church at that point, if he or she had been attending church before that. And I can, there are real-life examples of this. So this is despite the fact that Hawking made a category error, because if you look through why he thinks this start of the universe and start of time with the universe implies no creator, it's because he equates God with creatures. He regards God as just a more powerful creature. Um, that is not the understanding of God from the Judeo-Christian point of view. Certainly not from the point of view of the Church Fathers, and especially not from Thomas Aquinas, who makes the point again and again that God is not a being, God is being, and God confers being on every material thing that's existing in this room and everywhere else in the universe in a timeless sense. God is entirely other than creatures. But, you know, it takes work to take a philosophy course. You have to take a philosophy course, but if philosophy is dead, you're not going to take a philosophy course. You're just getting into college. Um, now, that same Stephen Hawking who asserted that modern cosmology disproves the existence of God, in uh, back well before this in 1996, in debating another famous cosmologist, Roger Penrose, asserted that Quote, I don't demand that a theory correspond to reality, because I don't know what reality is. All I'm concerned with is that the theory should predict the results of measurements. So, which is the real Stephen Hawking? One from 1996 who says that theory doesn't necessarily tell you about the, the ultimate essence of reality, or the Hawking of 2018? Well, there's a Hawking of 2023, because in April, a new book by Hawking's uh, former student, Thomas Hertog, which is actually very, very, very um, well written, describes Hawking's work at the end of his life to try to uh, better understand the origin of the universe. And this is a figure from that book. In 30 seconds, you can take our universe with its four forces, one of which is gravity, and try to explain gravity with the same mathematics as you do the other forces, the electromagnetic force and the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force. That effort has failed. Back about 20 years ago, an extremely talented physicist, uh, Juan Maldacena, who's actually a practicing Catholic, realized that if you recast the equations that describe space and time in two dimensions instead of three, and you essentially regard that two-dimensional uh, structure as uh, the equivalent of a hologram that is generating the three-dimensional space that we live in, four dimensions, space plus time. What Maldacena found is you could get rid of gravity that you could describe all of the essence of this two-dimensional holographic structure, if you will, with just quantum mechanics, which is very interesting. It's called the holographic universe model. 
And what Hawking and uh, Hertog did was to rearrange that model in such a way that the dimension that they got rid of was not one of the space dimensions, but was time. So essentially, the universe, and this is a very entertaining picture that Hertog did, and he copyrighted it, um, is that this, if you, if you had a God's eye view, this is the universe all the time is imprinted on this hologram and somehow being projected out into what we perceive as the flow of time in our four-dimensional universe. And they say, or Hertog says, because this is in this book that just came out two weeks ago, if you, you can do this with a hologram. If you take a hologram, you project it, and you gradually cover the outer parts of it. Holographic image doesn't go away or get partially blocked. It just gets fuzzier and fuzzier. But finally, when you get covering all of it but the very center, you just don't really see anything at all. And so he concludes that we just simply can't see the beginning, that the beginning is forever out of our reach. And that the idea of getting a theory of how mechanically the universe came to be and how time began is simply, by definition, out of reach for creatures. This is a lot more Thomistic than anything um, that's been written in this field for a long time, and they get rid of the idea that there are multiple universes. They argue in this book there's only one universe. So now that's the Hawking uh, posthumously, 2023. So which one do you believe? Um, it's very important that people don't take these beautiful models of how our universe works and try to use them to argue for or against the existence of God. This is a great example of how models come and go in which some look like they've gotten rid of God and others require God to actually begin everything because it's out of reach of our physics. So um, it's very important, but people don't recognize that. People also don't recognize how uh, philosophers, the work of people like uh, Aquinas and so forth are beginning now, centuries after that work, to um, have utility again in the way that we think about our science. The whole concept of emergent phenomena and emergence harkens back to the Aristotelian causes as described mostly by Aquinas. Um, the underpinnings of matter in string theory, that underpinning all of matter are these incredibly small, formerly incredibly out of reach, I mean literally out of reach, little vibrating one-dimensional strings that roll up all of the other dimensions and more. Um, sounds very much like prime matter, like hylomorphism of um, Aristotle. And in fact, some philosophers like Edward Fazer have uh, made that point in books like Aristotle's Revenge. So the problem is not that these ideas of the philosophers of the scholastic period, and even before that, are necessarily out of date. Some are. The science is out of date, but not the philosophy. It's just that these ideas are difficult, and they're subtle, and they require as much of an effort to learn as the science that you learn. And yet they sometimes get trivialized by very famous scientists, and hence the good work that the Thomistic Institute is doing. So I'm very much inspired by the lives of scientists who not only hold firm belief in God, but have committed their lives to their faith and their science. 
Um, here's a list of just a few that um, put together. Uh, I won't go through each of these. Um, I'll say a little bit about George Lemaitre, but Gregor Mendel, who not only, as we learned in high school, developed the laws of, of uh, heredity, but actually developed and in the same paper wrote up a mechanism for how traits are actually inherited. A mechanism that is essentially the, the modern mechanism, although he didn't know about DNA or chromosomes, things like that. But he had the, the right idea. Darwin, on the other hand, believed that traits were inherited from all the organs of the body through tiny particles that he called gemmules. And if he was right about that, they'd all have sort of mixed brown and green eyes. I guess they'd all be gray, whatever the average green includes, that green and brown. Um, but anyway, that isn't very well appreciated. Uh, Victor Hess, who uh, was the discoverer of cosmic rays. George Lemaitre revolutionized our understanding of um, cosmology of the universe by being the first to publish a model of the universe using general relativity in which the relationship between the expansion of space seen through the recession of galaxies and the distance of galaxies was actually first particular. And then Juan Malvasena, as I mentioned, um, invented the holographic universe model. Um, so I, I want to say just a couple of things about Lemaitre. There's a whole hour-long talk that I give about this. Lemaitre's contribution came about a decade after Einstein had uh, developed his theory of General Relativity and published it in 1915 and 1917. And at the time, it was not understood that what we now call galaxies were, in fact, giant systems of stars just like our own Milky Way that are a great distance from our own galaxy. At the time that Einstein worked, the upper right picture is kind of the best view you could get of galaxies, and, and they were thought perhaps to be just clouds of gas in our own galaxy. So Einstein's theory, uh, which is one of the best tested, and passes every test, uh, best tested theories of physics, um, had a problem, which is that if you wanted a static universe, which is what the universe seemed to be at the time, you had to introduce an arbitrary constant into the equations to kind of push space outward, because matter would tend to cause space to collapse in on itself. And Einstein put in his equation something he called the cosmological constant to push matter outward. Um, he didn't like that idea, although it has had some utility later on. Along came Lemaitre, and actually before Lemaitre, a Russian uh, physicist named Alexander Friedman, who published uh, a few years, a couple of years before Lemaitre, but Lemaitre was not aware of his work. Both of them redid the solutions to the equation of relativity, assuming an expanding universe, which Einstein initially didn't like when he came to accept. Lemaitre's work in 1927, in many ways, is more important because Friedman passed away before he could engage with the data. Lemaitre engaged with the data, which at the time was the uh, expansion, the movement of galaxies away from us, which reflects the expansion of space. And he derived a very important relationship from uh, the 
say that and from his model for expanding universe, which is given here in French, but it's um, a law that has for a long time been called Hubble's law. And it says that the relationship between the distance to a galaxy and the speed at which it's moving away from us is a linear relationship. It's the equation of the straight line. And the slope of that line is what's called Hubble's constant. But Lemaitre actually derives it here in this paper. And I'm showing it to you in French because even though a few years later, this paper having been ignored because it was done in French, Lemaitre published it in English, uh, he omitted this critical part because by that point, the data had become so much better that what he used in this 1927 paper by the time he republished in 1930 was really out of date. So he didn't get credit for this law. Hubble, who had done the observations, got credit. But eventually, Lemaitre did get credit in 2018 when the International Astronomical Union voted to rename Hubble's law the Hubble-Lemaitre. But the thing that Lemaitre is most famous for is taking his model one step further and saying, well, if the universe really is expanding, which it seems to be, it had to be expanding from some incredibly dense uh, infinitesimal point. And that was what's now called the, the Big Bang model, uh, which remains the model of choice for understanding how the universe began. And Lemaitre published this in 1931. Now, why am I talking about Lemaitre in this way? I'm talking about him in this way because not only was he a brilliant cosmologist, he was also a Catholic priest. And uh, he was not just a Catholic priest. He became a monsignor and prelate of the papal household and president of the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. And through his life, talked about the relationship between science and faith. And I want to read a couple of things that he wrote. Um, quotes on this. There are two ways of arriving at the truth. I decided to follow them both. Nothing in my working life, nothing I have ever learned in my studies of either religion or science has caused me to change that opinion. I have no conflict to reconcile. Science has not shaken my faith in religion, and religion has never caused me to question the conclusions I reached by scientific method. Now, that doesn't mean that Lemaitre pigeonholed the two sides of his uh, human mind between science and religion and put a curtain in between them. In fact, he thought a lot about the implications of his model. Um, a draft of that 1931 paper that's in the um, archives in, in uh, Louvain in Belgium, which is where he taught, has a draft of that same paper in which the last paragraph is a meditation on the hiddenness of God in the laws of physics and God as uh, being uh, supporting every being and every action. His English wasn't perfect. But he meditated on this. He also meditated on the question of why the universe could even be comprehensible. He wrote elsewhere, both the scientist believer and the scientist non-believer attempted decoding the palimpsest of nature. 
The believer perhaps has an advantage of knowing that the riddle possesses a solution, that its degree of difficulty is presumably measurable with the present and future capacities of humanity, which essentially is a way of saying that we have, it is the intention of the creator that we be able to understand this beautiful creation. And um, this was his answer to Einstein's statement that the biggest mystery uh, about the universe is its comprehensibility. How can we possibly comprehend? Okay, so I want to close um, with a couple of thoughts. In their 2019 study, Eklund and colleagues found that um, when non-religious scientists and religious scientists work closely with each other, they realize that science and religion don't actually conflict with each other. And this is uh, kind of precursor to their more recent study showing that many atheist scientists don't really harbor ill views toward religion. So if a great number of well-respected scientists, they go on to say, were to discuss how uh, they reconcile their faith and their work, we predict that prejudice against religious scientists would decrease. And I think Lemaitre is uh, the exemplar of how this happens, as are the, the Vatican astronomers, the Jesuit astronomers who work today in astronomy and are all Jesuit priests and brothers. And so this is why in 2016, six of us, all Catholic, uh, founded the Society of Catholic Scientists. In six years, it's grown to over 1,500 members. Its purpose is to witness to the uh, harmony of faith and reason, and you can find uh, the uh, website by just typing in Society of Catholic Scientists. If you're um, a student uh, or a working scientist and you're Catholic, you can, you can join. This is also why the Thomistic Institute exists. The Thomistic Institute, although it's mostly talks on philosophical and theological topics, also is relevant to the question of science. And Going to Thomistic Institute lectures helps you to, and, re, and watching the excellent videos, helps you to, to really understand what uh, Aquinas and his successors were trying to say. And it does take then courage to take all of this and witness to your faith, especially in situations where the expectation is that the secular point of view is the nominal point of view, the one that is expected. Um, if you're pursuing a career in science, engineering, or philosophy, witnessing to your faith can sometimes be dangerous. It can sometimes be detrimental to your professional advancement. Does that mean you ought to keep silent about your faith? I'll leave that as a personal choice for each of you. Um, I would only say that uh, we have good examples of how pitching your faith in different ways to different audiences can help in this kind of scary process. Uh, and one of the best examples is St. Paul. St. Paul in the Acts of the Apostles goes to Athens, uh, runs into a number of Stoic philosophers. They invite him to the um, Areopagus, which is this big rocky bluff above Athens, uh, which I visited last summer. <clears throat> That's the view of Athens today, not in uh, 50, 50 AD. Uh, and he went on to proclaim uh, to them that God made from one the whole human race to dwell on the entire surface of the earth. And he fixed the ordered seasons and the boundaries of the regions so that people might seek 
God, even perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from any one of us. For in him we move and have our being, as even some of your poets, Athenian poets, have said. There's profound wisdom in these words, the imminence of a transcendent God, his nature as creator, uh, which he confers, in which he confers being on the physical world. That's a message that an Athenian philosopher could digest. But then Paul goes on to Corinth, and his message there is, is somewhat more direct, somewhat more attuned for his Jewish audience. In Acts, it's reported that Paul began to occupy himself totally with preaching the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So different ways of preaching the same message, the message that we're made by God, that we're made to love him and to be loved by him. So in closing, to those of you who are thinking of a career in science or you're already in science, please embrace it. It's one of the most wonderful things you can do with your life. Strive to be the best you can be, discover new things. But also, if you have a religious faith, be passionate about it. Don't think that one has to exclude the other. Don't forget who is behind all that is, all of reality. And for those times when you do feel vulnerable in your faith, when you feel that you're standing like Paul at the Areopagus in front of a very formidable crowd of Stoic philosophers, remember that you're never alone. It is Jesus Christ who reassures us at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Thank you. Yes, please. A, a comment, uh, actually two comments. First, uh, on, your, on your general topic, every year at, at uh, Loyola University of Maryland, there's a meeting called Cosmos and Creation, which is for scientists of faith. And some of the, and so it's really hardcore science, but then you have religious, there's a mass and there's a non-denominator. And so that's it's a reassuring experience. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that you didn't mention is that not only has there been a history of science viewing religion as antithetical to reason, but there actually has been a literary movement, including one of the presidents of Cornell University, who wrote books in the 1800s, whose purpose was to, to say that there was a, that science and faith were antithetical. But at least in the case of, of the president of Cornell, he was making that case at the time that land-grant colleges were being established, and he was trying to make the point that we're the only non-denominational, right. and therefore we should get the money. Yes, that's right. And uh, Lawrence Persik, who was at the, at the undergraduate campus, was a chemist and a medievalist, yes. gave a lecture on this, and what he said was that when you read the books, there's one from Cornell and there's one from Britain, he says they've really not understood the literature that they're citing. They've, they've really manipulated the conclusions of the literature for their purposes. So when Carl Sagan was citing those books, what he said was, Sagan didn't go back and look at the primary literature. Right, yeah, no, um, so there's Andy uh, in, in bronze or copper or whatever, the first president of Cornell, first president. And there's the book that, I'm sorry, what was your name? I'm Bill Wright. Yeah, that uh, 
Professor Wright? Yeah, I'm, I'm retired. Okay. The <laughs> Professor Wright was referring to is on the right. And if you read that book, it reads like a supermarket tablet. <coughs> it's written in this kind of uh, over-excited way. And uh, it just over-dramatizes things in the way that, um, you know, one of the many magazines we see at the supermarket checkout counter would do. Uh, it's not really a history. But I'm very glad that uh, Professor White helped to found Cornell because they, that's where my paycheck comes from. But the book, <laughs> they tell the book is a source. You're absolutely right. But he only got money for the agricultural college. Oh, that's true. Right. Then you got the agricultural college. Yeah, and then there was the whole land grant thing, but I don't want to take up time. Uh, thank you very much. Anyway, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.